I was watching TV the other day, and I saw that very common, all-too-familiar commercial about Ancestry.com. And like you, multiple times in my life, I thought, you know what? I think I want to do that. I think I want to find out who, uh, who I'm related to. And then I began thinking about it and thinking about the family that I do know. And I thought, hmm, maybe I don't. <laughs> I, I'm already having to deal with the family that I do know about. <laughs> I don't want to have to cope with the family that I don't know about that I have to find out about. So I, uh, I decided not to do that. However, it, it had me thinking about the importance of, uh, of family trees. And uh, you uh, are interested in your family tree. You're interested in where you came from, things about your life and your family that you may not know. Now, the great news, if you're a Christian in here, it doesn't really matter where you came from. It matters where you're going. And uh, even if you're a non-Christian, for all that matters, that same concept. It doesn't matter where you are. It matters where you're going to go. And God has a plan for all of us when it comes to where He wants us to spend eternity in uh, in time, we'll talk about those things. However, as we think about uh, our family trees, it wasn't just important in this day and age. Uh, family trees aren't important just for you and me and for the people who came up with Ancestry.com. As a matter of fact, throughout history, family trees are of the utmost importance. Family trees in, uh, in ancient Israel, in ancient Israelite culture, they taught and helped people understand uh, how lineages work because lineages matter because it figures out who comes to power who takes on thrones, who takes on authority, and how you would receive an inheritance. And so if I were to tell you, hey, uh, here's the deal. I'm, you, there's a million dollars waiting on you. You just have to prove it's yours. And you would be really quick to go back into your family tree to figure out how you're going to get a million dollars. Well, same concept. That's how people in that time, and even in some sorts in this time, figure out who gets what and who uh, gets to make decisions. Now, uh, the family tree that you're going to see this morning is found in Matthew 1.1. You can go ahead and flip open your Bibles to that particular family tree. Now, what's important about this family tree is more than just money, more than just who gets to sit on the throne and who gets the authority and the power. This genealogy does much more than that. This genealogy tells you and me why Christmas is important. As a matter of fact, if you don't understand this genealogy, you're going to misunderstand Christmas altogether. Now, of course, you can celebrate Christmas, you can buy presents for one another, you can decorate the tree, you can uh, go to Christmas Eve services, you can have family over for dinner, you can do all of those things. But when the question comes, why do you celebrate it? It is going to do you a lot of good to understand the genealogy of Christ. And as a matter of fact, it'll be really, really good for you to find and understand one verse in the genealogy of Christ, and it's Matthew 1, 1. Now, if you don't understand Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, you're going to have a problem for the rest of your life understanding why Christmas, why Jesus, how did all this come about. And if you do understand this, I promise you that you as a Christian, if you're a Christian in here, if you've turned away from your sins and you've trusted in Christ, this genealogy will undergird you with faith and steadfastness to move forward in your faith knowing God is the God of divine providence, that God is the God who has promises that he fulfills throughout history. See, many of us, we have weak faiths because we don't see the meta-narrative or the, the whole picture of what God's doing on earth. There's a lot of times we make God about me, 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 and when it seems like your life is going awry, you oftentimes lose faith. But the genealogies teach us that God's got a big picture in mind, that God has something great that he wants to share with you and I, and we can see it throughout all of history. And this genealogy is one of those opportunities for us to look and say, Jesus wasn't just a 
mid mid plan addition. You know, Jesus didn't or God didn't look at the world and say, "Man, this is bad. I got to go fix this." Jesus, go take care of it. It wasn't like that. It was always been God's plan, and it's always been God's plan to include you and I in His redemptive history. And that's why it's so important for you and I to understand the family tree of God. Now, I kept using the word family tree, family tree, family tree. Now I'm going to bore you because I'm going to talk about genealogies and covenants. So don't lose me, okay? Do not lose me because what you need to understand is that the covenants of God or the promises of God are so important for you and I to know if we truly want to know about Christmas. Look at Matthew 1.1. Matthew 1.1 is the Christmas story as told by Matthew's gospel, and it starts this way. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I know that if you have your Christian lenses on right now like I do, this just flew right over your head. But I want you to, for a moment, I take your shoes off, metaphorically speaking, please don't really do it, uh, and I want you to put on some sandals, some first century sandals. Okay, I want you to put on some sandals that old Matthew was wearing and the rest of the Israelites when you read this, okay? You got them on? Your sandals on? Look at this. I want to share with you this really, really cool insight to the first verse. What this is saying, what Matthew is saying is this is the book of the genealogy. Do you know the word genealogy in the Greek is the word Genesis? Christians, we are familiar with the word Genesis because why? It's the first book in our Bible. The first book in our Bible is the word Genesis. Well, Matthew knew that because he had the book of Genesis back when he was writing this, and he wanted to draw a parallel for us to say, hey, just like Genesis was the beginning of God's work in humanity, I'm writing you about God's new work in humanity. And it's the beginning. It's the new work of Christ. And that's what he says. This book is the new beginning of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of us, we put our Christian glasses back on. We think Christ is Jesus' last name, and it's not Jesus' last name. It wasn't Mary and Joseph Christ who had a boy and named him Jesus Christ. You know, That's how our names work, but that's not how their names worked. His name was Jesus, and actually his, his name was Jesus of Nazareth. However, Christ was an a, uh, Old Testament prophecy that the, the Israelites were waiting on their Christ. Now, Christ, hold on, ready? Hold on, do this, squeeze and listen to me, okay? Here it is, all right? Christ is literally, in the Greek, Christos, Christos. But it comes from Hebrew, right? When I'm teaching you about the Bible, we have to go from Greek to English, right? Well, they are, they're one step further. They had to go from Hebrew to Greek to English. So say, from the Hebrew, it was Messiah or anointed. When you hear that in Christmas, Jesus, Messiah, the anointed one. Well, that's just... In the Greek, that's just Christos, which we put in the English, Christ. And so what Matthew is saying here is not Jesus' first and last name. What he's saying here, this is the beginning of God's new promise to people, and it's going to be fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One. And so if you are a Jewish, uh, if you're a Jewish reader and you're saying, you're telling me this is the guy that my mom and dad told me about? You're telling me this is the guy that my mom and dad, mom and dad, mom and dad, mom and dad, mom and dad told them about, and they told them, and they told me this is the Messiah? And Matthew's saying, yes, this is the one whom we all were foretold who was going to come and fulfill all these covenants that they made to our fathers. Now, our fathers, that's why it says here in the next few phrases, look at that, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, we understand that Jesus wasn't the son of David right there in the moment. He wasn't the son of Abraham, but what he was was the great, 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 great grandson. So when they say son, they're saying this, that he is 
your bloodline. He is from your generation or from your people, from your group, and from your line. And so he, here we have the most important phrase in the New Testament saying, God has made a new promise. As he's made the promises of you in the Old Testament, God has made a new promise, and it's fulfilled in Christ, the son of David, whom the Davidic covenant was made, and from whom the Abrahamic covenant was made. Now, in this one verse, we're directed to three Old Testament covenants. And these are three Old Testament covenants that you and I have to know if we really want to celebrate Christmas with a real understanding of why the Bible teaches us to celebrate Christmas. So if you want to hold on, we're going to learn about why we celebrate Christmas. And I hope a lot of your questions are answered this morning because you have a better understanding of the real reason that we're here celebrating this time of year together. So follow along with me. The first covenant that we need to understand is called the Abrahamic covenant, or if you will, the promise of God to Abraham. And you're going to find that in Genesis 12. There's that word again, Genesis. Go ahead and flip there in your Bible or on your phone or your tablet or if you're typing on your computer, flip open Genesis 12. There in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we have Abram who enters the narrative. And here it's still Abram. He hasn't, God hasn't renamed him Abraham, but he's, he's Abram. And this is how he enters into the conversation. In verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go far from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's a couple of tenets here. I really want to focus on four. Here's four things you need to know about the Abrahamic covenant that helps us understand why Christmas is so important and how Christ fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. And here's the first one. First one, the promise that God makes in this tenet is, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a great nation. We can look through Scripture and find that Israel built up King David, King Solomon. It was a great nation. Uh, we believe eschatologically that God will bring about Israel again, all those good things. We can get to there later. Uh, but we see this being fulfilled as we read and unfold the Old Testament. Now, look at the next one. I will bless you and I will make your name great. I want you to pay attention to this because promises are important. Because if you don't understand God's promises in the Old Testament, you're going to forget that God is a promise-keeping God. And God is keeping his promise to Abraham, and he even does it today. You know Abraham as what? Father Abraham had many sons. Okay, all right. All right, you don't know a song about me. Why? Because I'm not that great, all right? But you know a song about Abraham, don't you? Because he's great. And as a matter of fact, did you know this? That the three major religions in the world all trace their lineage back to Abraham. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. 90% of all of the earth, look at this, I mean, this mind-blowing, 90% of all the earth looks to Abraham as their progenitor, as their father. So when, when God says, I'm going to make your name great, you can't get greater of a name on earth than Abraham. Because everybody, almost everybody on earth, excluding some far eastern religions and philosophies, believe that Abraham was the father of their religion. Now, what kind of promise-keeping God is that who indeed makes his name great? Now, there's people who've skewed it. There's people who have ran off and created their other religions. But the fact remains that God did make his name great. Now, and he also says this, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who dishonor you. And this uh, fourth tenet that is of utmost importance for you and me 
is this last part. When he says in verse 3, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is good news for you and me because we're not Jewish. At least you may not, you're probably not Jewish. In here. 99% of you in here are not Jewish. Uh, and there's bad news if you're not Jewish. The bad news if you're not Jewish, this promise does not pertain to you. You're alienated. As Ephesians says, you're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You are a stranger to the covenants of God. Do you, do you, do you remember that verse? Like, we aren't part of this covenant. And so all these things that we're going to read today are for, the, for Israel, for the Israelites. But here's something interesting for you and me. We're called Gentiles in the Bible. So us Gentiles, there's some good news for us right here. Look at this. It says, in you, all the families of Israel are going to be blessed. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. It says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what we see here is some foreshadowing of God making promises, not only to Israel, but to the whole world. We see here that not only is Israel going to be blessed, but God's going to make a way for all the people of earth to be blessed. And we, in 2020 hindsight, could say, He is Christ. That Christ, coming through the line of Abraham, came to the world, and He died for our sins, and now the whole world can be blessed. It's not just left to Israel, it's all people, for all times. And we see that foreshadowed here. I, I kind of opened the curtain for you and let you see in, but you got to see it. you got to see it because it foretells it. You see, we got to understand that if we're going to understand Christmas and we got to understand the significance of Christmas, it's because we recognize God's global redemptive plan. And that's point number one on your outline. Write that down on your outline. We're going to recognize God's global redemptive plan, and that's really the reason that Christians celebrate Christmas. And, and for those who say, I, I celebrate Christmas, but I really don't want to talk about the gospel. I don't want to talk about God, evangelism, God's... I mean, that's literally what Christmas is. I mean, it's literally the, the, the declaration that, that God has come, and he has come for you and for me. I mean, the whole message is a message of the gospel. The whole message is me telling you, hey, you're sinful, you're a sinner, you're separated from God, and God has come down to earth and done something that you and I can't do, and that's be perfect. Let's be the, the all-sufficient sacrifice. I mean, that's what Christmas is about. I mean, you can buy presents and you know, do all the elf-on-the-shelf stuff, whatever you want to do, but you've got to realize that Christmas isn't about elf-on-a-shelf. Christmas is about Santa Claus. Pastor Nick, St. Nicholas, would tell you that Christmas is not about him. It's about Christ. It's about the cradle, but more than the cradle, it's about the cross. And we need to recognize God's global redemptive plan, and it's unfolded right here in the third verse. And it says, in you all families of the earth will be blessed. And that is God showing us that God's got a plan, not just for Israel, but for everybody. I want to turn you to uh, another verse. We were in the beginning of the Bible, and I want to take you all the way over to the end. I want you to open up Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 9 through 10. We want to see God's... uh, global redemptive plan, and I want to show you the fulfillment of it. Of course, we're right in the middle of it right now. We're right in the middle of people coming to know him. We're right in the middle of of nations who've never heard about Christ, people out in the the aboriginal forest and the jungles of all these places. They're coming to know Christ. If you don't believe me, go look it up. I mean, right now we have Christianity spreading through the global south like never in the history of the world. we're, We're running out of time for people to say, well, what about those tribes in those countries? Well, what about them? They're coming to know Christ. And and here's why I'm telling you this is going to happen. Look at Revelation 7, verse 9. It says, After this, this is John, the apostle, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So right here, what I'm going to show you is that's going to be 2020 hindsight when we get there, but right now I want you to have 2020 foresight. Okay? 2020 foresight tells me that there's going to be a day where, every, where we're standing in the presence of God, and there are going to be people there who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ, and they're going to be from every tribe, every nation, every language, and every tongue are going to be in the presence of God. And that is going to happen because of God's promise to Abraham that all nations are going to be blessed. You see the importance of Christmas here? And how it was so important that in Matthew 1.1, Matthew said, listen, you got to know that he's Jesus the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He is the one who's going to bring about the promises of Abraham to you and to me. Jesus is of utmost importance. Without him, you and I don't belong to the promises of God. Only through him do we receive the promises of God. You see, Abraham was a a conduit through which God's promises were extended to all people. See, Jesus being Abraham's offspring, he was the heir that would fulfill the promises that had yet to be fulfilled. I want to show you even in in Matthew's... uh, genealogy of Christ here. We even see this promises and flashes through Jesus' genealogy. I want you to flip back to Matthew 1. I just want you to, I'm going to show you some places to look. All right, we're going to see uh, God working in divine providence through Jesus' genealogy to show that the promises of God were not just for Israel. That God's promises, Abrahamic providence for him blessing all people was not just for Israel, it was for all people. There's four names I want you to circle uh, mostly through three through six, verses three through six here. Uh, you have four women. There are four women here: Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Which Bathsheba's name won't be on there, but it should say the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Okay, well, if you know your Bible, that's Bathsheba. Underline those four four names in, in those few verses, because I want to tell you something about Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. They were non-Israelites, okay? So it's already scandalous enough that in this royal genealogy, listen, this royal genealogy, like what Matthew's trying to do is prove to the Israel, to Israel, he's trying to prove to the Jewish people that this is your Messiah. And I'm going to tell you something. If uh, in that time, if you were trying to prove something about somebody, that they're kingly and that they're honorable and that they're worthy, you're probably not putting non-Israelites in the genealogy, because all you're doing is proving the point, saying, "Ah, this guy, look, these people aren't even Jewish. You remember, Jewish people hated Samarians. You know know why they hated Samarians? Samaritans? Why? Because they were intermarried. They were half-blood. And so the last thing that I want to do, if I'm trying to prove that I'm something big, I'm not going to put people who aren't Jewish. Now, very uncommon in this time also was putting women in a genealogy. Happened sometimes, it was not very common. It was not common to put women in a genealogy, because you, your heir was through men. Your heir was through the, the, the kings of the men, of the males of the families. And so putting women in there wasn't helpful for your case. Now, even stranger still was the very sinful commonality of all these women. What we know about all these women is that they were all sexually promiscuous. All these women. All these women, when you go around the town and ask them, hey, what about this woman? What about this woman? What about this woman? They'll tell you, hey, that was lady may have been a prostitute. That lady was sexually promiscuous. That lady slept with King David and had a kid, and Uriah died. We even look at Mary, right? I mean, even Mary, people are going around and saying, oh, what happened to Mary? 
Mary and Joseph are not married, and yet she's with child. I want you to pay attention here that God's got something to say with these women who are in this genealogy. And what he's saying is, listen, it doesn't matter about your sinful history. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter who you are. God is going to include all people from all languages, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. And here's what they have to do. Turn away from their sins, trust in Christ. Do you hear that? I mean, when you look at these women, what did they do? They, they turned away from their past, and they trusted in God. And he's got the promise that still sustains for you and I that if we would turn away from our sins and we would trust in Christ, we too will be saved. What this genealogy teaches us, especially through these four women here that we read, is that no one is too sinful or too gone or not of the right pedigree that they couldn't be saved by God. And that's why our sermon series is a new beginning, the God of promises, because this genealogy literally means new beginning. And Christ fulfills the covenants and creates a new beginning. And what he does in your life, when you turn away from your sins and you trust in him, he gives you a new beginning. And so there's nobody in this room that's outside of the reach of God. And this genealogy proves it. The Abrahamic covenant proves it. There's a lot we can learn about the Abrahamic covenant, but we need to move on to another covenant. The second covenant that frames our understanding of Christmas is God's promise to King David. God's promise to King David. See, if if Abraham was the one with whom the world would be blessed, all people would be blessed, King David's covenant was that to say, King David, I'm always going to give you a a son on the throne. That That was the main tenet of this, and you'll find that in 2 Samuel. Flip open to 2 Samuel. I butchered this earlier. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. So there's how you get to it. So get there really really quick. All right? Second covenant, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17. I like hearing the pages flip. All right. All right. I'll, just, I'll just start reading. All right. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, I mean, this is talking about David here. This is Nathan, the prophet, speaking to David on behalf of God, if you want to know really what it is. Uh, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne. And I know you Bible scholars in here are saying, whoa, 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 whoa. He's talking about Solomon here. And I'm like, sure. Okay, what we got to understand about prophecy is, is the term double prophecy. Okay, we understand double prophecy is this. When uh, people wrote back then, when you read 2 Samuel, uh, you understand that God had a message for the people of Israel during the time of Nathan the prophet and David the king, right? Okay, so he had to say something to them. And so when we read this, we're going to find a lot of this pertains to them, of course, here. We understand when we read this that uh, David's going to have his kingdom established. His son is going to build a house for his name. Well, we know Solomon did that, right? David wanted to build a throne. Guess what David didn't get to do? I'm sorry, a temple. Guess what David didn't get to do? Didn't get to build a temple. God told him he wasn't going to. But But God said, David, I'll let your son do it. And so Solomon, we see building a temple here. So a lot of this promise here we see fulfilled in Solomon and the subsequent king. However, there's a problem here. And look, look down at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. First problem in the text. 
uh, we know that that didn't happen when we read the Old Testament. Even when we, you can get out of the Bible and just read history, we understand that after Solomon's reign, what happened? Okay, not long after, you had the divided kingdom. And so you saw this line fall. He was no longer over the kingdoms. You had a lot of bloodshed. You had a lot of anarchy. You had a lot of problems going on. And lo and behold, no Davidic throne being established forever, not even for the next 100 years, as a matter of fact, but definitely not forever. So when we read this, we either have to think, well, either the Bible's not true or there's something else we need to understand here. Let's keep reading. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14 starts cluing us in. I will be to him a father. Interesting. All right. And he shall to be me a son. Wow. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Now, a lot of you are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, I know Jesus. He's sinless. Well, of course he was. Okay. But when I look at Hebrews uh, 5, 8, and 9, I look at how the writer of Hebrews looked at this passage and said, yeah, you know, Jesus is sinless, but what did he do? He paid for the sins of man. And so God did, in fact, discipline him, and that discipline and sacrifice of Christ actually made him perfect for salvation. You hear what I'm saying here? And so when I read this, I'm thinking, wow, this is, just, this is, just, this is Jesus. This is his life. Now, of course, we're looking at 2020 hindsight, because when Jesus was born, no one knew that he was going to be the sacrificial lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You can read that in Matthew 1, perhaps, or John the Baptist may have told you that after he was an adult. But what we don't see that, we don't see that. We, we can't see that unless we're 2020 hindsight. But it's important for us to look at this fulfillment of the Davidic covenant as Jesus the Christ. Now, if you're like, all right, I get it, I get it, but I'm not really there yet. Okay, well, let's keep reading. Verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. We understand that David wasn't the first king of Israel. It was Saul, and Saul did not obey God, got rid of him. And now we have David. So we have David, and the promise to David was, hey, I took it away from Saul, but I'm not going to take it away from you. In verse 16, the most important part that you and I need to understand here. Verse 16. In your house, David, in your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. However far you stretch your imagination, you cannot figure out how, the king, how David's king kingly line through Solomon and his sons and his sons and his sons meet this criteria. They don't, but somebody does. And how we, what we have to understand in our minds, how in the world can a kingdom be established forever when we all die? I mean, there is an eschatological feature of this. Eschatology, I mean, the end times, there's something that's going to happen that's going to be important for you and I, and it, the Davidic covenant is necessary for this to happen. Now, a couple of key features you need to understand about the Davidic covenant. God's going to keep the throne in the family. That's really what it is, right? When you have nice things, you keep it in the family as long as you can, right? And you like that. Well, God likes that. God's keeping the throne in the family of David, okay? Uh, he's going to build a house for my name, and I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. I'm going to be his uh, father. He's going to be my son, and I'm going to discipline him with a rod and the stripes of men, and I promise that he will be before me in my presence forever. Does that, who does that sound like? Who is that? It's Christ. I mean, that's the fulfillment of Christ. And here's the good news for you and me. God's promise to David ensures that there will be a king who reigns eternally in the presence of God. There's a lot of reasons why that's important for you and me. But for the Israelites, for, for Israel, it was important because they wanted a king. They wanted a king who would be their, uh, their proxy, the person to which God leads them through this king. Okay? And in the same way, you and I, we do a lot of the same things. Okay? You want a great president, don't you? Right? You want good government. You want a good local government. You want people who lead you. 
We all do. We want good leaders, okay? And what I'm saying is the good news that you have, according to the Davidic covenant, is we do have a king. We do have a leader who will lead us and will not fail us. Problem is, you've got to be looking at the right kingdom. Too many of us look at the world's kingdoms who fail, as we look through oftentimes, and we'll dig in deeper next week. But we have a God and a kingdom and a throne that will never fail. Now, we've got to fix this whole eternal problem thing of the kingdom. Jesus' resurrection from the dead ensures that his eternal reign is the king that God had promised David. Here's the great news of, uh, here's the great news of Christ, and here's a problem that you would run into when you read about the disciples. A lot of us get mad at the disciples, and I think you shouldn't. You shouldn't get so mad at the, the apostles, uh, especially uh, in the Gospels, because here's what happens. The Jews knew about this Davidic promise, right? And they kept looking for Christ. That's why when, when Christ come in on the donkey, right, uh, right at Passion Week, they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Right? I mean, they're like, okay, this, this could be the guy. You know, we're looking for the, we're looking for the, the throne. We're looking for the Davidic covenant. And then everyone's like, this, David could, or this Jesus could be the, the David to come. And uh, the disciples are like, all right, we're going to rally around this guy. All right, this guy's the guy that our parents told us about. And then he dies. And then you guys look at the disciples like, how, how can you guys just live? This is, a, this is a sinless savior of the world. But you got to realize that the promise of the Davidic covenant was that they would have an eternal king that reigns forever. Well, you can't reign forever if you're dead. And so the disciples were like, well, uh, nice try, swing and a miss. I guess we'll wait again. I guess he wasn't the one. Okay, bah, that's, that's the, the, the low part of the story. Okay. But here's the great part of the story of why Easter and Christmas have to be connected. You can't separate them. The great news is that Jesus' resurrection from the dead ensured his eternal reign. And so the good news about us is we have this blank, like, how could anybody reign eternally if everyone dies? Well, yes, you're right, and it can't unless somebody resurrects. And because someone resurrected, we now have an eternal king in the Davidic line who will reign and will lead his people Israel and will take all people out of captivity. You can't write stuff like this. I mean, it's real. It literally happened, right? And that's why as, Christ, as Christians at Christmas, we celebrate more than the birth of Jesus. We can also look forward to the eternal reign of Jesus. It's point number two on your outline. Write that down, point number two. You can look forward to the eternal reign of Jesus. It's more than the cradle. We're, we're more than talking about a cradle here. We're talking about the cross. We're talking about the throne. We're talking about redemption for the world, and that's fulfilled in Christ. Two places I'll take you. I won't turn you there, but you can at least jot down uh, Matthew 2, 1 through 6 is, is where we're at as a matter of well, the next chapter. Uh, we need to look forward to the eternal reign of Christ. And the reason that we can trust that this is the Messiah was because when we read Matthew 2, which will be our Christmas Eve service, we're going to go through Matthew 2 and the visit of the wise men and those great things. Uh, but of utmost importance for you and I to understand is people were awaiting the first coming of Christ. You understood that when we talked earlier about the Jewish people, but you realize there were non-Jewish people looking for the first coming of the king through the line of David. I mean, you have these wise men coming from Persia, who we haven't heard about these people that much since we read the book of Daniel. And so you have these same people, when the prophet Daniel was there during the Babylonian exile, and he's talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's doing all those things. I don't want to lose you. I want you to pay attention. There's a big picture here, okay? And Daniel's there, and he's, and he's like the king. He's the leader of the courts and of the magi and of, the, of all these people there in Daniel. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? You follow me. Okay? He was over all those people. Well, long after he died, these magi of, of uh, Persia were still reading the prophets of Daniel. 
And so when they were reading these prophets of Daniel and they saw a star and they were like, hey, our Daniel, a Jewish guy, told us that there was going to be a king born in Bethlehem and that star tells us where he is. And so these people go and they're like, and they go and they go find him and they go look for him. Like, I'm t- what I'm telling you guys is you can look forward to the eternal reign of Christ because there are people looking forward to the first reign of Christ. Okay? There were people looking forward to the first one, and they were probably called crazy too. When they went to Herod and said, hey, King Herod, there's another king here. He's just born. Herod's like, news to me, man, news to me. I didn't know there was a king here. Okay? These people probably looked really crazy. Just like you and me, we look real crazy when we're told to wait on the eternal reign of Christ. But when I look at Revelation eleven fifteen, you jot that down. Okay, the Magi probably looked pretty crazy when they were looking forward to the, the first coming of the Davidic son, the king of Israel. We're going to look pretty crazy when it comes to looking at Revelation eleven fifteen. Revelation eleven fifteen says this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying this, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Did you hear that? That was literally verbatim the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And I know sometimes the Bible seems confusing and it's hard. No, I get it. That's why you need a good church. That's why you need pastors and teachers who can teach you these things. Because what I'm telling you is it's clear as day in the Bible that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and he's the king that is and the king to come. And it says it here in Revelation that he's going to reign forever and ever. And just like they might seem crazy about the Magi going after this king who was born in Bethlehem because they believed in the promises of God, it's going to look crazy for me and you to be looking forward to the eternal reign and the second coming of Christ because we believe in the promises of God. And I'm saying that if you want to celebrate Christmas, you need to understand the promise of God that we're not, we're not celebrating a baby. We're worshiping a king. We're worshiping an eternal Savior and Lord. It's more than a cradle. We're not just talking about a cradle here. We're talking about the fulfillment of a kingdom promise. It's through the birth of Christ that we see the Davidic covenant initiated and partially fulfilled. And I'll get to that. But as Christians, we await the full fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And this is what I'm saying. It's partially fulfilled. You do realize. It's partially fulfilled. As Christ was born for the line of David in Bethlehem, that's great. So he is the heir to that throne. Now, we still live in a sinful world. Christ died for our sins. Now, he has set apart a people. It's called the church, ecclesia, the called out, the assembly, the church. That's who we are, okay? And Christ is going to come back and take us with him, okay? And Revelation 20 says then that he's going to come and reign for a thousand years, okay? That's called the millennial kingdom. And what that means is this, that Christ is going to come back and he's going to come to rule and to reign. Now, here's why more, there's so much, uh, but we won't get through all of it. But suffice it this way, don't you, you got mad at the disciples because they got mad, so they kind of like fell off when Jesus died until the Spirit came in Acts. You're like, what what happened to you guys? Y'all are so downtrodden all the time. Well, do you wonder why uh, Jewish people are still looking for a Savior? Because the promise of their Yeshua in the Old Testament was a ruler who is going to come and to rule and to reign. Okay, well, do you know when Jesus comes back at his second coming, what he's coming to do? Rule and to reign. And so when Jesus comes back his second, in his second coming, you know what all these Jewish people are going to do? They're going to be like, ah, Yeshua, Messiah. Okay, so what I'm telling you is God's got a plan for everybody, and it does include Israel. Okay, and just because they don't get it, 
Uh, just like a lot of us don't get it, God's going to make a way for them to see that their ruling king, Messiah, is going to come and he's going to rule and he's going to reign. And that's why we have to understand that Christ is coming back. This isn't a storybook in Revelation that, well, that's a nice story. I understand you're trying to scare me into believing in God. No, I'm telling you that Jesus is coming back the way that he left. And he's going to come down to the Mount of Olives and he's going to come and he's going to rule and he's going to reign. And that's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And what I'm telling you guys is, you see how clear this is? I mean, this is like painting a picture, and I'm telling you, this isn't fake. This is real, and it's going to happen. And it's as clear as a bell in, in Scripture. It's very clear that this is all going to happen, which is amazing. And then after that, guess what? He's going to reign eternally at the right hand of God, and he's going to forever and be in the presence of God, reigning as a Davidic heir to the throne, and we're all going to be there. Because of the Abrahamic covenant, it's not just Jewish people, it's you and me. And that's how we look at uh, Revelation Where's that? Revelation 7, and it's all tribes and all tongues and all nations and all languages. We're still there. But because of the Davidic covenant, we're there with Christ. Man, this is good, isn't it? And that's just one I want to remind you, like I said earlier, don't look to other kingdoms for the answers. Like, the Bible gives you the answers to these problems. I mean, I hope today it's kind of helped you see that God's got this under control. I mean, God's got the, to the minute detail of who gets born to whom, to whom, to whom, to whom, who gets to fulfill the promises. And just like he knew all of your family and all of your descendants, and he has somehow created an opportunity for you to sit right here and hear this, to hear the gospel of Christ, to hear the covenants being fulfilled. Like God knows everything, and he's got it all planned. But here's the good news, because there's a third covenant, a third promise that I want to talk to you about here. The third and final promise of God that is the culmination of Christmas. And I know we've got you all the way to the end, and now you've got to stay longer because you won't get it if you don't stay for this part, okay? All right. The culmination of Christmas is what we call the New Covenant. Now, you understand the New Testament, which is, comes from the Latin, okay? But what it means is New Covenant in Latin and in English is called the New Testament. The New Testament is how we got our whole New Testament. So when you say, I don't know the New Covenant, like, yeah, you probably know a little bit of it because you read the New Testament. And the New Testament literally is the New Covenant. And so what we see in the New Covenant is all these promises fulfilled in one person. And you say, okay, Pastor Hayden, but, but where did it ever say that there needed to be a new covenant? It looked like God had all this taken care of already from what you've been telling me. Well, I want to turn you to Jeremiah 31. Go to Jeremiah 31. I want you to go down to verse 31. Because God made the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant. There's a lot more covenants. There's the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which we'll hear here. A lot of promises that God's made to people over time, but these are the two that we needed to understand when it comes to understanding the messianic promise of Christ. Uh, and here's the third one when we understand this messianic necessity of Christ coming on our behalf. You can read it here in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Verse 31, it starts and it says this, Behold, days are coming, which means they're not here yet. Days are coming, it's future. There's something going to happen that isn't happened yet. And we know the Davidic covenant's already happened. The Abrahamic covenant's already happened. The Mosaic covenant's already happened. So there's something new coming, right? There, behold, days are coming. They're not here, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant. There, literally, it's right there. You didn't even have to translate that. It was right there. I mean, no hoops to jump through. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Who comes from the house of Judah? David and Jesus. Come on, new covenant. And it's got to go through the house of Judah. It's literally got to go through David's descendants and this descendants of David. That's why the whole book of Matthew tells you all the way from Abraham all the way down to Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. Like, I mean, this is, come on, guys. Man, you need to be hopping out of here after this. This is great. All right, verse 32. 
And this covenant is not going to be like the covenants that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Well, he's talking about the Mosaic Covenant. And that's important to understand. We're not going to talk a lot about the Mosaic Covenant, but it, you need to understand a couple of things in order to understand what he's saying here. Okay? Before I took you out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. That's it's funny because what happened, the Ten Commandments, Moses went up to Sinai, wrote the commandments down, and then what? He broke them. I said, broke them. That's funny, okay? All right. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, God said, I made a covenantal promise with you, a marriage contract with you, and I was your husband. You were my bride. We see that picture in the New Testament, okay? Declares the Lord. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Now go back to the Mosaic Covenant. What happened? Yeah, Mosaic Covenant. He's up in Mount Sinai. How do they write it? What does he write it on? A stone. She's saying, you know what? It's not going to be like the Mosaic Covenant because I'm not going to write it on a stone. I'm not going to write it on a stone. I'm done with the writing on the stone. I'm going to fulfill a new promise, and I'm going to write it on your heart. Hmm, that's good, right? Okay, follow with me. All right, I'm going to write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now, this is some people like to tell me, see, we don't need a pastor. We don't need people telling us about the Bible because it says right here in Jeremiah that we don't need people to teach us anymore. Uh, you have to understand, we're talking about the Mosaic Covenant. And the really important part about the Mosaic Covenant was there had to be people there uh, reading the laws and keeping people within the laws. And so when he says this, he's saying, listen, you're not going to have to carry the Ten Commandments around and all these robust laws to try to keep within my covenant. He's like, I'm going to put my covenant in your heart. Like, you're all going to know it because it's going to be in you. When you sin, you're going to be convicted. When you break the law, you're going to feel it and you're going to know it. It's not the Mosaic Covenant. This is the New Covenant. And he says this, from the least of them to the greatest, they're all going to know, declares the Lord. And this, this is the important part you need to understand, the most important tenet of this new covenant. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That is the, the main thrust of the new covenant. The old covenant, even the Mosaic covenant, says, listen, these are the laws. And when you break these laws, there's a sacrificial system. Right? You got to sacrifice the lamb, you got to sacrifice the bull, you got to sacrifice the goat, you got to sacrifice the turtle dove. I mean, you got to everything. There's, there's a sacrifice for everything. And when you sinned, you were held responsible and accountable to that sin. And this is remarkable because when we read here, I'm going to forgive their iniquity and I'm not going to remember their sin. The reason the sacrificial system was necessary was because their sin was remembered and they had to appeal to God to forgive them for their sin through the sacrifice. And this is amazing because now it says, I'm not going to remember it anymore. No need for the sacrificial system because I'm going to take care of it. I'm not going to remember your sin anymore. I'm going to take care of it. Part of this new covenant, and you can see the new covenant. If you want to write this reference down, I'm not going to go over it. Uh, if you want to see more of the new covenant coming to realization, Ezekiel 36 is another place when it talks about when I'm putting my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. Literally, in Ezekiel 36, he says, I'm going to put my spirit inside you, which to you and me, that takes us back to John 10, right? When we're starting to understand the spirit being given to us, the helper, the advocate that God's going to give us. All promises of the new covenant that gets to be extended to you and me because of Abraham and through the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Isn't this amazing? You see, the other two covenants that we dealt with, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, they dealt with people and places. The new covenant deals with our need for the forgiveness of sins. We had promises through people, 
the, Moses, uh, the Davidic covenant had to do with David's throne, had to do with a, play, a person and a throne. The Abrahamic covenant had to do with a man and his land and his descendants. The new covenant has to do with you and I who need a sinless Savior to take our place because we can't. And that's why you and I need to understand our need for Christmas. And that's point number three. You need to write this down. You need to understand your need for Christmas. You need Christmas. Every year this time gets around, and you're like, I just I hate Christmas. I just can't wait for this to be over. And I'm telling you, you need this. Like, you need Christmas. Like, without Christmas, you have no hope. Without Christmas, you have no Savior. Without Christmas, you have no promises fulfilled. Without Christmas, even Israel, the Davidic line isn't filled. The Abrahamic covenant's not fulfilled, and there is no new covenant. The world needs Christmas because we need a Savior. Now, this is, I want to point, take you to one more scripture to turn to, to, to nail down the need for the new covenant that we call Christmas. Luke 22. Go to Luke 22. Here, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Go to Luke chapter 22. When we understand our need for Christmas, we understand that it isn't gawking at an infant that we all want to do, right? We all like, oh, cute baby Jesus, you know? It's like we all want to gawk at a little baby because it's cute. Uh, but we got to understand that that baby was born for a reason, to be made in the likeness of, of humanity so that he could carry the burdens that we couldn't. And this culminates here in Luke 22 when Jesus is telling the disciples, hey, uh, you remember why I was born? Here's what I was born to do. And I want you to look at uh, verse 19. Luke twenty two nineteen, And he took the bread, and you're like, oh, this sounds like the Lord's Supper. It is. And this is why we take the Lord's Supper, and I want you to hear this. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Just like in ancient Israel, uh, they would raise a lamb. And this lamb's only existence for its whole life was so that it could be offered as a sacrifice on the sacrificial system on the altar at the temple. Jesus being born as an infant baby and you're gawking and you're looking at him, you need to understand that the only reason he was born was to be the spotless sacrificial lamb, to be raised up, spotless, brought before the sacrificial system of God, nailed to the cross and died for our iniquity. Like That's why he was born. And he's saying this, like you need to understand, I'm giving you this bread. This bread doesn't save you, but this bread is what I'm trying to show you is what has to happen. And he's saying, this is what has to happen. My body is going to be given for you. They're going to nail my body that should be your body. Like They're going to nail your sin to me when it's your sin. God's going to put the penalty of death on me when it's yours. And he says, so I'm giving you my body. That's the new covenant. Christ is giving you himself to take your sin, to take your shame, taking that on him. Now, this is what he says. My body, which is given for you, do this and remember to me. That's why we take the Lord's Supper, because we want to remember that God gave his body over for us. Now, verse 20. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, this is the cup, the wine cup. Right? This is the cup, after they had eaten, saying this. This is the cup that is poured out for you as the new covenant. Do you hear that? New covenant. There it is. Literally, there it is. This is the new covenant in my blood. Right. We read in Hebrews and we understand there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. We understand that there is no forgiveness of sin if there's no blood shed. And that's why so many people say, why did Jesus have to die? Because there is no forgiveness of sin if there's no shedding of blood. And so when Christ was literally born on Christmas so that he could fulfill the new covenant so that you and I could be before God because of the Abrahamic covenant, we're included. Because of the Davidic covenant, we have a Savior who's going to rule. Because of the new covenant, we get to be a part of it. 
Merry Christmas. Guys, Merry Christmas. I mean, that is what we're talking about. And it's the new covenant, and it takes the blood of Christ. And that's why you can't be in the presence of God without the blood of Christ. That's why you can't be in heaven, and you can't be a part of the new earth and the new creation. You can't be a Christian if you don't turn away from your sins and trust in Christ and his redemption for you, his blood shed for you. You, can't be, you don't just waltz your way into heaven without the blood of Christ. It takes the permission, the forgiveness of sin. And so who should ever would believe in him? Believe. Pisteo, the verb. I mean, you need to believe, which means it's not just a mental ascent. It's me saying, I'm going to turn away from a life lived for me, and I'm going to trust in Christ. <clears throat> you need Christmas because the baby in the manger is the one for whom the world will be blessed, is the promised eternal king who gave himself for the forgiveness of sin to whoever will turn to him. You see, Christmas is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the initiation of the New Testament, and the promise of of a new beginning. And for all of us in here, who whatever you have going on in your life, whatever sin that you're trying to walk away from, whatever problems that you're going to run into with your family in the holidays, your own conscience, your own sin problem, like this is a new beginning. God has made a new covenant for you and for I that if we would turn from our sins and trust in him, we inherit the promises of God. And let's not forget that this year. Let's not forget this during a consumer-driven holiday. Don't be consumed so much that you forget but why we celebrate Christmas. Because the Bible points to Christmas and ultimately to the throne of God. Pray with me. God, we do thank you uh, for your word, how you are just so clear that so much in this world and so much... Uh, that we understand it's so foggy and just we can't know if we can believe it. When we see your word, you make it so clear, like the, the, just the, how all of your word is so cohesively connected that we can see the fulfillment of your promises all in the man of Christ, all in the man of Jesus being born for our sin, that he would take it upon him, carry it to the cross, abolish it, and make a way for us to be in your presence. God, what a Christmas that we get to celebrate this year, understanding how your promises of old are still the promises of the new. Thank you for all you've done. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>